0: Morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Are you recovered from the time change yet? Are we still? It's horrible. It's like jet lag, but you didn't get to go anywhere. It's like just cruel. Uh, Just so you're aware, um, I I think this is exciting. Uh, The next couple of weeks we're going to have something a little bit different. So I'm going to be out of town next weekend. We've got Carl Kutz, who is... The chair of Bible and theology from Multnomah, and he is a biblical languages professor, so he's going to be here preaching on Zechariah 6 next week, so that will be awesome. He's a great guy, um, uh, very learned, very passionate, so I'm excited to have him here. And then the following week, I'll be back, um, but though I'll be here, I still won't be preaching, so you get a two week break from this, right? Um, we've got uh, Terry Smith, who's the vice president of church ministries for the Christian Missionary Alliance. So he's going to be in town uh, the first, uh, what's that, the third of April. So we're going to have Carl Kutz next week, Dr. Carl Kutz, and then we'll have Reverend Terry Smith the following week. So get ready for that exciting time to hear some other voices um, and some pers- perspectives from, from uh, outside agencies and then from within the denominations. So that's really exciting. We um, we're in this series in Zechariah. Why are we here? Let me just remind you again: It's very easy as believers to spend a lot of time in the New Testament because that's where Jesus is most clearly described, uh, and we like the practical implications of Paul's letters. We love Revelation and what it tells us about the end, and then we look at the Old Testament and we're like, ah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that wasn't the noise I was going for, but that's the noise we're getting this morning. Um, so we're, <laughs> we're looking back in the Old Testament. We are, we're trying to round out our biblical education by jumping back and, and looking at what points ahead to the Savior that we love so much. We're deliberately focusing in on the minor prophets right now with Zechariah because it's an area that, let's be honest, most of us don't know very well. And so even if we've read our Bible a million times, we've probably looked at it in depth maybe once And so it's a good chance to dig into an area that we don't know so well. And then with the message of Zechariah and where the people of Israel are at, the message is so applicable to us today and especially where we're at in the life of this church. So we're jumping back into Zechariah today. And we're going to look at the seventh of the eight visions that Zechariah has in this one night, February 15th, 519 BC. He has one evening where he has these visions one after another. We looked at number six last week with the flying scroll. We're going to look at number seven this week. But I'm going to do what I did last week and read seven. and seven together. So we're going to read all of chapter five. It's short. So let's read uh, the sixth and seventh visions together, and then I'm going to invite us to reflect and respond uh, on the vision that we're looking at today. So this is Zechariah chapter five. Zechariah says, I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. And the angel asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that's going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and I will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and it's stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and he said, look up and see what's appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it's a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back down into the basket and pushed its lead cover down onto it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket, I asked the angel who was speaking to me. And he replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Couple of really bizarre images connected because both of these images are to do with the cleansing that God is promising them. So let's remind ourselves again where we're at. I'm hoping by the time we get to the end of this, you're going to be able to tell me all the time what the context of Zechariah is. Where are they at? Uh, the people were living in the land, they were disobeying and and uh, the covenant, they weren't following God. So God exiles, sends them off into exile into Babylon. So they've been in Babylon. Uh, they've been in a place of repentance, they've been sent back to the land by Darius, and so they're in the land, and they are rebuilding the temple. So they've started the work, and then because of oppression and difficulties and infighting, they've given up the work. So for 20 years, the temple lies unfinished, and Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying to them, go in and finish the work that God has called you to start. So we're at this point where they're back in the land, the temple foundation is laid, the temple remains unfinished, and these visions are all promises that I'm going to do the work that I said I did. And so as part of that, as the temple has been reinstated, uh, As we're going to measure the city and it's going to be without numbers, we're going to cleanse your priesthood so that they can offer sacrifice again. And then we're going to cleanse the land of all the sin and all the idolatry. And this is the promise that he's giving to them. So as we look at this vision today of this woman in a basket, it's part of this declaration that I promise I'm cleansing the land, it is coming. Uh, and this is necessary for the work that I am going to do. So let's, let's look at this passage again in just a little bit more detail. So here's uh, verses 5 through 8. I want to point at a couple of things in here, and then we'll jump into some fuller content. Um, so a couple of things to look at in here. First of all, you've got this weird moment. You've got this basket. We're going to look at that word in a minute, but then you've got this woman hiding inside this basket. So I don't know what you're picturing in your head. Are you picturing a tiny basket with a tiny woman inside? Or are you picturing a giant basket with a big woman inside? I don't know what you've got in your mind right now. But there's this woman inside, and it's significant for multiple reasons. So I want to draw attention to this first. First of all, what this is not saying is women are evil. Okay, just, just be clear. Some people are like, really? Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's not what it's saying. Um, The word wickedness in this context, so Hebrew, like lots of languages outside of English, uh, words in the language are given gender. So just like in in Spanish, uh, words have gender. In Hebrew, words have gender. So the word wickedness, the gender of the word is feminine. And so it makes sense when you're using a word that's feminine that the image that they're going to use is a female. So that's one reason why it may be a woman that's in this basket. Um, Those of us who are familiar with the context of Scripture, we know that all the way through the Bible, especially through the prophets, uh, there are these exhortations and challenges and rebukes given to the nation of Israel because God describes himself as the groom and his people are the bride and they're supposed to be in relationship together. But it's like we're a man who's gone off sleeping with other women. And so the message all through scripture is, why are you committing adultery, chasing after other gods? And so this image of the woman symbolizes the adultery of the nation of Israel as they go chasing after other gods. Some commentators, when they look at this, they they see a direct uh, reference, and I, I don't agree here, they see a direct reference with the woman in the basket to the exhortations all through the Old Testament that the Israelites are not to intermarry with foreign women. And so they see this as the woman represents the foreign women that they've intermarried with, especially when they've been exiled in Assyria and Babylon. They've intermarried with women. They're bringing back the culture and the idols that, that, that are attached to that. And so it's those people that have been to be put off. Lots of reasons. Um, One of the things that I think is significant in here is chasing after other gods. But within that, I think there's some language in here that gives very specific types of idolatry that the nation of Israel is guilty of here. Uh, And you see it when you look at this word basket, because the word in Scripture is not actually basket. It says he looks up and he sees an ephah, And ephah is a biblical word that is a unit of measurement that they would use to measure things like grain. Um, and, And so sometimes the word is used to talk about the type of measurement. And sometimes they use it to refer to the object that you are using to do the measuring. So an ephah would be like a basket of flour. And how, how do they do the measurements? They're, sometimes they're using scales, but sometimes what they do is they just have a basket. Oh, well, here's a basket. I wasn't going to use this as an object lesson, but I will right now. So if I said, I'm going to measure all my grain by this basket, all I need to do is stick it into the grain. And there you've got your measurement, right? And so, so what would happen in the Old Testament and, and what still happens today is people weren't always honest with the unit of measurement that was in front of them. Um, And so one of the things that happens all through the the prophetic writing, and here's one example. The prophets are always calling out injustice. So Micah says something very explicitly. So does Ezekiel. Many of the, the other prophets allude to it. But they call out the use of the Israelites of their false ephah. So Micah, we know Micah 6, 8 well. It says, He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city... And to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasure, you wicked house, the short ephah, which is a curse? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales or with a bag of false weights? So you have all these moments where the prophets are saying, you are engaging in injustice, you're robbing people. And usually the people that you're robbing are the people that have nothing. And how are you doing it? You've shrunk the size of the basket. So people come and they're paying for an ephah of flour, and they're not getting the full ephah. You're using uh, scales and measurements, and you've weighed the scales in your favor. You've taken these little round weights, and you've hollowed out the inside of them so that people are not getting their money's worth. And so in part, when he's saying, uh, he looks up, and there before him is this basket. It's an ephah, and anyone who's in in Israel, understands the implications of an ephah. It's it's an instrument of measurement. So he's talking about the measuring of their sin. They understand all of the challenges that they've been given and the rebukes by the prophets, that you're engaging in justice, you're robbing from people. So this ephah speaks to something beyond just idolatry, but the injustice and the robbery and the thieving. And, And why do I think that might be the case apart from this word? What, what was he saying in, in the, the vision previously? In number six, the scroll comes across and it was rebuking the thieves who are stealing from people and it was rebuking those who are claiming to act in God's name but acting in a way that goes in opposition. So there's a, an injustice that is happening that God's people were guilty of and as they're restoring the people of God in the land, as they're reestablishing what it looks like to be the nation of Israel living in the land, one of the easiest things that they can do to, to disrespect God is to slip back into those systems of stealing from other people and ill-gotten gain For their own behalf. So so this vision is calling out that in all of its fullness. But the vision goes on, and in case you think women are evil because they're in a basket, eh, the the vision makes sure that that's not the case. Because he looks up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And I did find myself wondering, why is there one woman in the basket, and why wasn't it just one woman that lifts up the basket and carries it away? Um, I think probably in the imagery, the weight of the women, <laughs> the women in the basket, and you need two to carry it. But I did look at it going, it's really interesting that just to make it clear that he's not rebuking the women of Israel, he takes two women. So for the one woman that represents wickedness, there are two women who are doing the will of God and being as instruments and in removing this wickedness from the land. I think that's, that's really important. Where are they taking the basket? He says, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. Why Babylonia? Why build a house? We sometimes forget, we we don't always see the connection between words, but Babylon is in Scripture from beginning to end, and it's the city that is used to depict evil and wickedness. Why? One, because they're living that way, but it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. Can you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 11? God has told the people, go spread throughout the entire earth uh, and, and, and be fruitful and multiply, and instead of spreading throughout the, the earth, they gather in one place with one language and they decide, we're going to build a tower that's going to make our name great in the earth. And that tower was called the Tower of Babylon. It's the, it's the, the root word from which we get Babylon as a place. And so right at the beginning, Babylon's origins was idolatry. Let's build a tower to celebrate ourselves. Let's disobey the word of God by doing what we think is better and in the process fail to do what they were called to do. What were they called to do? They were called to go through the earth, uh, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful and to multiply. And instead, they said, let's just gather in one place all together and do the thing that we really like doing. Does that sound like any entities on the planet that you know? Uh, We're really guilty of this as the church, right? Instead of fulfilling the mandate to go forth and make disciples of all nations, we prefer to just gather in the building that we've made and make it about us rather than him. So this has been the problem from the beginning, the Tower of Babel, all through the prophets, all through the New Testament, even when you get to Revelation, Babylon becomes the archetype for evil, because they are the core people who are rooted in idolatry. And so in this moment, God is making this promise, I'm going to remove idolatry from the land of Israel. He goes further to say, I'm going to send them to Babylonia and there we're going to build a house for it. You know your Bible, right? So when he's saying house, when he says my house will be a house of prayer, when he says make the house of the Lord, he's not just talking about a house. It's usually a reference to a temple. So he's going to, this this iniquity and this idolatry is going to be shipped off to Babylon Where they're gonna build a temple to celebrate all of this wickedness. And that all through scripture becomes the imagery for the world. People who celebrate and build temples around the idolatries that stand in the way of us and God. And so all of this is is speaking ahead to to the idolatry of the people and the promise that a decisive moment is gonna come where God is gonna lift up those idols and they're gonna be shipped off to a different place and there's gonna be freedom for God's people. So that's, I mean, that's the simple explanation of the passage, but the the challenge of the passage is much greater for us, because the challenge is a call to reflect on your own life. Where are the idols that we are guilty of worshiping? Where are we, like Israel, guilty of celebrating things that are not Him? Israel was rebuilding the temple and idolatry was at the risk of destroying the world. We're here rebuilding this church and our idolatries stand at risk of destroying the work that he wants to do here. So then it becomes really important for us to identify what are the idols that we are walking in? What are the things that we worship outside of him? What are the things that as Christians we come into a gathering like this that we bring and stand in the way of us and God and rob him of what he is supposed to get? Tim Keller has this great book, Counterfeit Gods. If you've read it, this is how he defines an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to uh, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give, so anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to get what only God can give. That's an idol. Um, Way earlier than that, this phrase has become really popular, and it's kind of a modern translation of what John Calvin said. John Calvin said this of human nature. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. This is the condition that we're living in. What does a factory do? It produces and manufactures in large quantities in the most simple ways. Uh, and they become experts at producing and replicating things. And so this is the condition of our heart. Your heart is a factory producing idols. So the question is, are you aware of the idols that your life is churning out? Are you aware of the idols that your life is and has been worshiping? And then what do we do with that? So I want to look over a few of the most common idols that we are plagued by, both in society and in the church. Um, right before I go there, I want to put up some questions that I want you to have in mind as we're walking through this. Um, and I'll bring this back up at the end. But how do you identify the idols that you are worshipping in your life? So here's some questions. Number one, uh, where do I spend my time and money? What's the primary place that causes you to hemorrhage your finances? Uh, what do I think or worry about the most? So, uh, what, as someone said to me the other day, what lives in your head rent free? Uh, what do you daydream about the most what are you fantasizing about for the future what gets you angry or discouraged when you can't have it or don't get to do it what do i use to comfort myself when things get difficult rather than going to him for what am i willing to compromise my beliefs and values Uh, and what pulls me away from god so those are some questions to think about as, as we go through these. I'm going to give seven, um, but there are many more, and you'll know your idols, they'll come to mind, even probably already have. So the first one I want to bring up is money and materials. The love of money, Matthew 6, tells us very clear: we can't love both God and money. And here's the thing, right? We like to have in our head, the people that love money are the people that have lots of it, Right? You don't have to have much money to be a lover of money. Uh, There are people that have a lot of money and they love to spend it indulgently. There are also those people that don't have much money and spend their whole time fantasizing about what they would do if they had more money. The the frugal people are are also the people that are loving their money because if I can just save enough money, I will have all this security for my future. And so the the frugal person is saving and saving and saving and worshiping the bank balance uh, while the indulgent person is spending all their money and filling their house with stuff. Um, We can't love both God and money, but money is one of the biggest things Jesus talks about. It's one of the easiest idols that we get stuck to. Um, possessions is closely tied to the idea of money we spend money to buy things that we don't need what is it they say we spend money to buy things we don't need to please people we don't like uh, the more the more things we need the more we go well i like my tv but now i need a bigger one i need a higher resolution i like my car but i need a faster one or a better one i like my printer but now i want one that does different functions to what i had it before um, let me ask this question How many people have stuff in storage in your house? Boxes in the garage, storage units. How many of you have boxes that you're storing things in that you haven't looked in for multiple years? And then when you go look at those things, you're like, oh, but I might need it. (laughs) It hasn't fit me since I was six years old, but I might still need it. I love this thing. How many people have clothes in your closet that you never wear? And you look at them and you go, oh, I can't get rid of them. Because one day in the future, I might need that particular color of teal with the speckles on it uh, to match an outfit that I will never have to go to an event that I'm never going to go to. But um, we are so obsessed with stuff. One of the fastest growing like, things in the U.S., real estate-wise, are storage facilities. So many storage facilities being built so we can store the stuff that we're not using. It's not typically someone storing stuff in a storage facility because they're just about to move in and it's about to all get moved into their house. It's, I don't have enough space anymore in my house for all of the junk I've accumulated. So now I'm going to pay someone else to store it and I'm never going to look at it. Um, when, when you, I mean, we laugh because it's ridiculous, right? Um, why is it so hard to look at a piece of clothing that is covered with holes and be like, it's covered with holes, just chuck it out, but it's my favorite t-shirt. You can't wear it in public. Uh, the love of money takes so many forms. It's in what we spend it in. It's in what we dream about. It's in the jobs that we seek. It's in the way we save and it's in the way we treat the things of God. It's in our, our, our stinginess rather than our generosity. It's in our generosity, using our generosity to manipulate and control other people. It's when we say, if you don't do this thing, I pull my money. Or if you do this thing, I'll give you my money. We use money to control. It's become an idol, where rather than surrender to God, we look at the things that we have and the money we have. Uh, and we use it to get the things that we want, the comfort, the security, the power, the status that we're looking for. Money is perhaps the biggest idol that we wrestle with in our culture. Number two, I've I've put three words here together because they're all related, appearance or status or influence. We're obsessed with appearance. It's an idol, physical appearance. We see it in the types of pop stars that we worship, the movie stars that we see, the photoshopping of bodies to make them look thinner, bigger, musclier, whatever the words are. We get obsessed with health and fitness. And um, Those are good things. All of these are good things when, when they're done correctly, but we get obsessed with this, and it robs us of joy and robs us of the freedom that we have in Christ. Part of appearance is pretense. Uh, we're so obsessed with looking like we've got it all together that we fail to be vulnerable with the people sitting next to us. We fail to confess our sins to the brothers and sisters around us because what will they think if I knew if they knew what was really going on inside of me? It happens in worship. I wish I had the freedom that Jack has to be on my knees weeping before the Lord, but if other people saw me, what would they think? And so we hinder our intimacy with God in order to have the appearance that we're looking for. Um, We live in a world of social media influencers, so no longer do you have to be good at something um, to be successful and applauded by society, you just need to hit the one thing that gets everybody's interest for a moment, and all of a sudden you have a million followers on your social media account, and now you're an influencer, and our younger generation are growing up, like you ask young people, what do you want to be when they grow up, they're like a social media influencer because it means I just get to sit on social media all day, and I get to get things for free. It's an idol of status and influence. We see it in what I call othering. Well, that group of people, I'm not like them. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector. God, I give all the things to you. I'm amazing. And then the tax collector's down, well, me, I'm a humble sinner. And Jesus says, that guy, The tax collector went home more justified before God. We other people, we put them into categories to make yourself better than them, different from them, as a way of having the right appearance, the right status, the right influence. It's in the people we spend time with. It's the names that we drop I I listen to this news person, I watch this TV person, I read this person's book. It's when we fail to share our own opinion. Here's what I've been wrestling with in Scripture, and instead we go, I read this commentary once, and it says this. And we hide behind our intellect and other people uh, rather than being who God has really created us to be. And what does it do? It robs us of joy and intimacy. Number three, sexuality and identity. The church has so messed up at how we understand human sexuality, and we've turned it into just don't do these things and wait till marriage. But 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 we can idolize sexuality in so many ends of the spectrum. Yes, there's the promiscuous who idolize sex and sexuality by going out into the world and having as much sex as they want with as many people as they want and in many ways as they want. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the hyper purity culture that idolizes our sexuality by saying, never do anything, never make any mistake, save it till marriage. That's the only thing that's ever right. And then we judge the people around about us and then we make a mistake uh, and, and we deal with lustful thoughts and then we sit there God hates me because I'm failing all the things he's called me to do. We've turned it into an idol forgetting that the purpose of our human sexuality is an inner drive that gives us a longing for relationship and connection with other people. What's its purpose? To remind us that our human longings will never be fulfilled outside of our longing for the one who made us just like food, like we have hunger in our body to remind us that we need to eat. But what does Jesus say? My food is doing the will of the one who sent me. Our hunger pang is supposed to point us ahead to the longing for for the the true bread of life. Our, Our human sexuality is a longing for connectedness that's ultimately supposed to be fulfilled in Him. And um, within this, you've got personality. We, we idolize, I'm this kind of person, just get over it. I'm just direct, I'm brash, it's who I am, just suck it up and deal with it. And we turn our personality into an idol or, oh, I'm, I'm just a nice, kind person, I'm a pushover, like no one ever likes me, like everything goes wrong, I'm such a victim and we take that and we make an idol out of who we are and what we're doing. It's, it's summed up in that statement, I am who I am. Just deal with it. Take me as I come. I am who I am. This is it. You have no choice, no option. Nothing can change. You just got to deal with it. And we idolize who we think we are, who we want to be. Uh, and then we begin categorizing and othering again. You're that kind of person. You're that kind of person. And I'm this kind of person. And, and we create division with God and division with one another. Uh, if only the church could get this back into our mind. There's a, a great uh, author, Julie Slattery, She's got a book called Rethinking Sexuality, and she says, the church has failed at sexual discipleship. She calls it sexual discipleship. She's like, the church has largely been silent about the area of sex, other than it's a very wicked thing, don't ever do it, and then when you're married, everything will be good. She's like, so what we've done is we've outsourced our sexual discipleship to the culture because they're willing to talk about it. So people are discipled in the locker room they're discipled by Netflix, they're discipled by what they see on TV, they're discipled by porn websites. And the church fails to talk about the topic of sex and sexuality in a healthy and fulfilling way. And so we as the church have outsourced in our hyper-pure pursuit of God, we've outsourced discipling people's sexuality to the world. And then we wonder why the world is in the mess that it is. We've created an idol out of our sexuality, out of our promiscuity, out of our purity, out of our personality. Number four, entertainment. (laughs) Many of us are guilty of this, when it's like, how do you spend your time? I hate that little app on your phone that's called Screen Time, that shows you how many hours you have spent gazing at a stupid little metal block in your hand. Um. Some, some people I was reading in preparation for this were making a comment, like, if I put up pictures just now of the ancient, like, idols, so, like, in Israel, you've got that moment in Exodus 32, where they do the golden calf, and it's like, we're like, who on earth would worship, like, a statue of a cow made out of gold? We look at Hindu gods and goddesses, and we go, who would ever worship that stuff? And they said, could you imagine you went back to the time of Israel? and you had everyone walking around with one of these, they'd be like, what on earth are you doing staring at this thing in your hand for hours at a time, this shining little square of light? They'd be just as uh, as outraged and, and confused by it as we are by the things that we, they worship, that we worship. But... Um, Entertainment is such an idol. It's social media. It's the time you spend on Facebook and TikTok. It's the binge-watching Netflix and movies. It's the fantasy books and and the political books and the the, the fiction books and the non-fiction books and the historical books that we engage in to escape from reality. It's our addiction to the news and the trouble going on around the world. It's the podcasts, the radio shows. We have an endless supply of entertainment and if you add up the, the podcast, the radio shows, the Netflix time, uh, the blog articles, the, all that stuff, and you compare it to the amount of time you spend seeking God and His Word, and in prayer, the stats are shocking. Uh, we fill our life with mindless entertainment. Um, and again, I'm not, what I'm not trying to say with all these things, so don't ever be entertained. <laughs> Don't ever have any money. Don't ever care about your appearance and, and get fit. I'm not saying that stuff. But when these things are put in the way of Jesus, they become a problem for us. Closely tied to number four is number five technology. We're so addicted to our smartphones that it's now a diagnosable condition. You can go to a psychiatrist and be diagnosed as having a smartphone addiction. You know it when, like, you wake up in the morning and you can't, it's the first thing you reach for is grab your phone. It's the last thing you check before you go to bed is, is it plugged in? You notice it when you you go to walk out the house and it's like, the pocket that it's normally in, it's not there. And you panic, where's my phone? And you'll spend 10 minutes hunting the house to have the phone that you might not even use when you're going to the grocery store for two minutes to pick up a pint of milk. Can you leave the phone without it? We're addicted to our TVs and our computers. Uh, We're addicted to our cars. We no longer walk. It's quicker to just jump in the car and get there, never mind that we're polluting the environment in the process. We're in a constant uh, hunt for for the new. I want a microwave that I can talk to and and have it cook my food because it's not enough that I press a button. Uh, I want a stove that is now connected to my phone. I bought a barbecue that I can control from my phone so I can be here checking whether or not my beef is cooking right while church is happening so that I don't have to worry about it and it's ready when I get home. We're addicted to these things and, and we waste our money on them. We waste our time on them. And, and I think the worst thing with, with entertainment and technology is we don't take the time to think what is the messaging that it's giving us It's like, I really like this show, it's a lot of fun, I really like this book series, it's really engaging, and we never stop to say, this person had a worldview, and they're communicating the worldview through what we're listening to, and as you sympathize with this character in the story, your mindset is shifting and your theology is being affected because you're buying the message that this person is choosing to communicate, we don't think about it. Number six, I'm going to put the broad category of churchianity. Man, I could spend hours here and all the things that we do, the way we idolize denomination. My denomination is better. Protestants are better than Catholics. Evangelicals are better than liberals. We we idolize the denomination and we other people. It's our theology. There are certain things that we hold to that are non essential to our faith and we make it areas that we're willing to divide over. It's particular speakers and authors that we celebrate. So it's like, you know, uh This author, Tim Keller, Tim Keller wrote a new book. Tim Keller's awesome. I love Tim Keller. So because he's written a new book, it means it must be good like all of the other ones. And we switch our filter off because we idolize the person and their perspective and we're no longer attentive and discerning to what it says. It's the worship style that we celebrate. I can't worship when I go in and it's liturgy, I can't worship when I go in and it's hymns, I can't worship when I go in and it's those choruses that drag on and on and on. And we make this style an obstacle to our intimacy with Jesus. It's about the certain ministry or way of doing church. I have a ministry that I love. It is the right way. It's the way that we have to do. If a church is not doing this, they're not the church of God. It's the size of the church. Big churches are of the devil. Small churches are terrible. Home churches is where it's at. And we make idols out of every element of what we do in church. If Calvin is right and that human nature is a perpetual idol factory... Everything that is good about what we do as a church has the potential to be an idol. If we're not willing to lay it down for him, it's an idol. There are many, many more ways. Anyone in here like it's King James or nothing? How 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 can we make an idol out of a translation of the Bible that isn't even the language that it was written in? Um, if, if you're going to go there, let's go back to what translation of the Hebrew Scripture and what manuscript are you looking at for Isaiah? Um, we take everything and we idolize it, and it gets in the way of our faith. And the last big blanket statement is comfort. We want things in my way at my time, precisely. Don't ask me to do something I don't like. Don't ask me to do something that's difficult. Uh, I avoid confrontation. Because, why would I ever confront someone else in their brokenness? Because that's horrible. And don't tithe much, don't give too much away, don't explore something new or different because it's uncomfortable don't go to the other end of the world, don't sit down and have a dialogue with someone who views things differently than you, we idolize our comfort, and all of those other things, entertainment, sex and sexuality, identity, money, all of these things, technology, are all vehicles to give us the comfort that we're looking for. As creatures, we're creatures of habit, so we like habit because it stops us having to make decisions. I know exactly what I'm going to wear. I know where I'm going to park. I know what restaurant I'm going to go to. I know what I'm going to order on the menu. And it's, it's not a bad thing. We're creatures of habit, but it eliminates decisions that, that weigh on our minds. But it's all, we create comfort and we get stuck there and now we're no longer willing to grow and become the people that God's called us to be. And many times in scripture does Jesus say, hey, come, I want you to be comfortable forever. Just come follow me. It's going to be really easy You're going to get all the things that you want. You're going to be loaded. You're going to have plenty sex. You can do whatever you want. I'll give you technology galore. He says, come, die to self. Take up your cross. Follow me. Self-deny. Be willing to lose your life for me. The last are going to be first and the first are going to be last. Serve. Be a servant. He doesn't promise us comfort. He promises us joy in him. He promises us fulfillment in him. But our comfort it gets in the way of everything that God is calling us to do. There's many, many more. So, I mean, here's just a whole bunch of things. Have a little look and see what are some of the things on this slide um, that, that you resonate with. And there's many that I didn't get up here. The things that we worship and celebrate instead of him. The things that rob us, our mind, robs our mind of time with Jesus. It robs us of our money and of our time idol after idol after idol and these are the things as we look at this church and how do we grow to become the body that he intends us to be these are the things that stand in the way of our church being able to do what God's called us to do these are the things that stand in the way of the freedoms that God wants us to have and the ministry that he wants to do in and through us so let me uh, put the questions back up for you to reflect on think about the idols that you are uh, that you're worshiping in your life. Think about the things that you hold on to. Where are you spending your time and money? And you know it because you're like, "Man, I shouldn't have spent my money on that. That was a waste." What do you find yourself thinking about or worrying about all the time? It just goes over and over in your mind. What are you daydreaming about? What are the fantasies that you're building of a future that doesn't exist? What are you using to comfort yourself? When life is hard, where do you go? Do you go to Jesus, or do you go to the bottle? or the drugstore, or a friend, or a movie, or a book, or the coast? What gets you angry and discouraged when you can't have it or can't do it? When someone blocks your path and you just want to take them out, you're like, where's the nearest hitman? Uh, what gets you angry or what gets you down when you don't get it your way? What are those things that, that when they come up, you're like, you know, it's, it's a promotion, I can, I can fudge on my values just, just once. Just to get this promotion, I can have it. Doesn't matter that this company is doing things that are unethical, but like I, I, I'm getting money and I've got a good job and I'm comfortable, so I'm going to stick it out. What are the things pulling you away from God? So, what we're going to do is uh, somewhere near you on the tables and on some of the chairs, there's a, a green and a purple piece of paper. One of them says personal idols, and one of them says church idols. And so I want you to take some time during worship. Ribbon's going to sing some songs. Uh, you're welcome to sing along. But I want you to take some time and write down. No one else is going to see. them. don't put your name on it unless you really want to confess. Uh, but I just want you to write down. What are the personal idols that you constantly buy into that stand between you and intimacy with God? What are the personal idols that that if you continue to worship them will hinder what we're trying to do as a church. And then I want you to think about the church. Now, if you're new to this church, you may want to think about the church in general. Um, But if if you've been around this church for any length of time, I want you to think, what are the idols that this church clings to? What are the things that are good things that we have chosen to put out of focus and, and make instruments of division and discomfort? And I want you to write them down. And then during worship, you're going to be invited to come up and just plop them in these baskets. Because the imagery in in the passage was uh, this woman in the basket that these two winged women picked up and shipped off to Babylon as a symbol to them that they were gone, Um, and that God was going to do a cleansing work. We know the cleansing work wasn't in Israel rebuilding the temple. We know the cleansing work happened. The power of idolatry was destroyed in Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so... I want you to take some time, write write them down. When you feel ready, come drop them in the baskets and let that be a, a prophetic and symbolic act of laying down these idols and asking Jesus to take them as far away from you as the east is from the west so that we can be the church that he's called us to be without obstacles in the way of him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us despite our hearts being an idol factory. You designed us that you would dwell in our hearts and consume our minds. And due to our fallenness, we've knocked you off that place and we've put other things there instead. And so, God, what we need today is is your creative insight. We need you to help us see the idols that we're carrying personally. We need you to help us identify the things as a church entity that we place above you. Um, and then, Lord, we are, we're trusting as we take a step to, to lay these things down before, before you, that you will place yourself up in its place and you will remove these as far from our church as the east is from the west. So cleanse us so we can worship you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>